Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. June 1st, 2023, the Kevin McCarthy Hercules of Capitol Hill edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., Kevin McCarthy's city, Kevin McCarthy's town. I'm honored to be here. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. It's far away in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Emily Bazelon, further still, fully out of Kevin McCarthy's titanic shadow of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. This week on the GabFest, the House passes a bill to extend the debt ceiling for two years. How bad was this whole business for the whole country? Or maybe how good was it for the whole country? Then the Ukraine counteroffensive is coming. We will talk to Corey Schock of the American Enterprise Institute and the Atlantic about where the war stands today. Then the fascinating fracture in the Texas GOP where Attorney General Ken Paxton was just impeached for an incredible, immense set of corruption charges. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, GAFest listeners, that we will be live with you on June 28th here in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I Historic Synagogue at 730 that's a Wednesday. You can get tickets at slate.com slash Live. There's still a couple of tickets left for our pre-show cocktails, and there are tickets left for the show. So come join us. It's a We love doing live show. It's a great venue, and there's going to be a lot to talk about, as there always is. So join us Wednesday, June 28th, slate.com slash Live for tickets. On Wednesday night, over protests from progressives and the far right, the House passed with a fairly broad majority the bill Speaker Kevin McCarthy had negotiated with the Biden administration to extend the debt ceiling and make various cuts, changes to several discretionary government programs. The Senate will likely pass it quickly and Biden will sign it, putting this now regular national nightmare in the closet for two more years when it will subsequently emerge boogeyman-like to cause some other havoc. So. John, what did McCarthy and the Republicans get and what did they not get from this spectacle, this negotiation? Well, they got cuts in spending in next year and limiting of growth of spending in 2025 for a portion, a very small portion, really, of the budget, not even non-defense discretionary in part of it, but non-defense, non-veterans discretionary. But that's not nothing. It's anywhere from under a trillion to 2.5 trillion, depending on who you talk to, it's probably closer to under a trillion, which is a great deal less than the 4.8 trillion that the Republicans had originally asked for. So they they got that spending. They got some other sort of signaling kinds of benefits. There was money shuffled around and some taken away from the IRS that the Biden administration was going to use to fund additional IRS agents. It's not really clear that there will be a whole lot of damage to the Biden project at the IRS because of the way you can move money around. But nevertheless, they got a win sort of symbolically on that. They got this term, you've heard a lot, the clawing back of some COVID money that was sent out during the pandemic but hasn't been spent. And they got some work additional work requirements for certain kinds of social benefit programs on a net basis, at least according to what I read from Annie Lowry, it actually looks like those SNAP and TANF actually because of other changes in the bill, that there may be a net increase in the number of people who actually are available for those benefits. 
But nevertheless, Republicans care a lot about work requirements, and there are some work requirements on single people without children in certain age ranges. And I think that's basically it. And the the biggest thing is they got proof of concept, which is they wanted to use the debt ceiling as a wedge against the president, and they were extremely successful in doing that. And as the first test of their ability to govern by their own lights, they were successful. Right. So the economists that I trust seem to think this is not a terrible result for the economy. The cuts are not huge. Cuts are okay. These kinds of cuts are okay at a time when inflation is still a concern. The work requirements are pretty minimal and won't be too onerous for too many people. Important things like the funding for COVID vaccine research is, were protected. But the process, Emily, is just a, it's just like a terrible, depressing process. And I, I mean, it feels to me like this was a, certainly a procedural victory by the House Republicans. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have a negotiation over the budget with the threat being government shutdown if the government doesn't get funded. Or, and now we have a negotiation over the budget where the big threat hanging there is that we don't pay our national debt and there's all kinds of potential mess for the economy. And now we seem to have both. And if the Democrats, the next time they have a chance to raise the debt ceiling to some, you know, unreachable amount, don't take that chance. They're just setting themselves up for this kind of second bite at the apple of negotiations in which the threat is this enormous kind of unthinkable one that whoever is president would be held responsible for. I think Biden was probably right that, you know, he was going to bear the cost of that. I also really wonder about his negotiating tactics, like to say I'm not going to negotiate and then to dismiss the idea of, you know, minting the coin or invoking the 14th Amendment mid-negotiation just seemed to really weaken his position. And so I don't really understand the just rhetorical moves that he made along the way, even though I think you're right that in the end, the deal isn't particularly bad. I mean, the one interesting thing is at least, I mean, knock wood, we, I'm assuming that the Senate will kind of pretty briskly get this together and pass it before anything catastrophic happens. The way they handled the negotiations, including the way that Biden talked down the 14th Amendment and the platinum coin, meant that the markets, there wasn't a spooking of the markets. There wasn't this cost to the economy that there was in 2011 when there was a lot more ambiguity about what might happen. And so, I mean, John, I don't know if that is that an argument in favor of of Biden's sort of calm capitulation. I think you can argue it either way. I think you have to give, I think there is some portion, and I don't know how big a portion it is, of of credit to give Biden for capitu- for capitulation. I mean, essentially, he said, we're not going to negotiate, and then he negotiated. And so, you know, that he takes a little bit of a bruise on that. But essentially, I think that it was not a misreading to think that if there's disaster, he will get the share of the blame for the disaster because he's president and because he's already getting a share of the blame for inflation. Also, it's a disaster, and he's the president, and he doesn't want the country to get fucked up. So it's like, yeah, also, yeah, yeah. not yeah, just yeah. the politics exactly. of it. All it's those the things. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Sorry for just completely eliding the fact that he may actually care about the, about the country itself. Right. Precisely right. So the one argument is keep 14th Amendment, coin, all that live so that you potentially have some leverage over the Republicans, or put another way, you 
diffuse the Republican leverage by saying, you know, you're threatening to shoot the hostages. Well, I'm going to say that the bullets in your gun are blanks. Now, if you don't really believe that, that's hard to sustain. And also, because if you don't believe that, you think the 14th Amendment is going to cripple the markets anyway. It might give you a rhetorical reason to keep paying the debt, but the markets are not going to listen to you and they're going to cripple. So you're going to get all the economic pain. And so your leverage isn't real leverage. And if you recognize that, then the reason you dismiss the 14th Amendment is you tell your Democratic colleagues, there is no back door. There is no exit. We need you to be on board for the president to help this thing get over the line, which is what happened. Kevin McCarthy got a big win by relying on Democratic votes. There were more Democrats who voted for this than Republicans. And I think that may in part be because the Democrats had no no way out. And to, to support the president and their party, they had to vote for this, which they might have not done if they thought, well, the, there's this back door we can use. Is there any equivalent issue that you guys can think of or equivalent sort of process where Democrats and Democratic intransigence gives them enormous amounts of leverage to to force the opposition party into something it really doesn't want to do? The debt ceiling, it's always been the Republicans basically holding the Democrats hostage. I mean, the thing is, if you care about the government functioning and you're sort of the people who want government to be good, it's much harder to play this role, right? You have to be the grownups in the room because there's this longer term discrediting that's happening. Right, right. Emily, does McCarthy come out of this stronger or weaker? To my eyes, he seems to have played it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think he held his caucus together. He's still speaker. He got a deal. There's some, you know, far right dissent and denouncing going on, but they just seem like they're kind of shaking their fists uselessly. So it seems like it was a test of his leadership and he passed. I think in the end, the discharge petition, the idea that any one member of of the Republican conference can can boot him was both helpful to him and also totally meaningless. Helpful to him in the sense that that he could operate in negotiations with Biden. And part of this is not only did he keep his conference in line, but this is his first time on the big stage negotiating with a president. And whatever was required, he got it done in that relationship too, which again, if you listen to Mitch McConnell talk about Joe Biden, you know, in previous negotiations McConnell has had with Biden, some portion of this is undoubtedly Biden's Senate and congressional experience, which was a real weight around his ankles when he was running as a primary candidate because progressives said, you know, your get along, go along nature in the Senate, you know, had you working with, you know, reprehensible people. Biden, on the other hand, basically recognizes that legislating sometimes requires compromise. One of the things that was striking in listening to the votes take place is you had both Republicans and Democrats educating their colleagues on, you know, the nature of legislating, which is kind of funny in today's politics. You don't hear a lot of that, but they were all talking about, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy, the good. We only control one house of Congress and so on and so on and so forth. But McCarthy may, you know, you can file a discharge petition, but then you got to have somebody to beat McCarthy with, and that person doesn't exist. So in the end, it wasn't a real threat, but by McCarthy operating under the, under the pretension that it was a real threat, it probably calmed down some of those members of his more restive conference because they thought they had some special tool they could use against him, which might have kept them quiet while he was negotiating. Frank For our, our friend, has a new book coming out about 
Biden and it's called The Last Politician. That's the title. It's very much about this idea that Biden sees the world through this lens of political jockeying and negotiation and compromise and that that is not necessarily how everyone in politics sees it these days, but it's his greatest strength and and probably a weakness too, but it is his greatest strength. I want to close just noting that what's hilarious about this, this was a negotiation about the debt and about the the, fa- the idea that the debt is completely out of hand and America is, is, you know, risks a catastrophe if it continues to pile up debt like this. And what's hilarious, of course, is the, the, the minginess of the solutions. Like if you were really concerned about the debt, you might look at any of the real drivers of it, Medicare, Social Security, the low tax burden of the rich, and you might attempt to tackle that. Did this attempt to tackle it? Did Republicans were Republicans or interested in this at all? No, they were not. I can't support that view enough. When you look at the amount of energy expended relative to outcome, both substantively and qualitatively in terms of focusing the conversation about the budget on the right places and dealing with the thing non-existent and not likely to lead to any more adult conversations about raising taxes or shifting earned benefit programs. It's just, it's so frustrating to see so much energy expended, as you say, David. Can I add one final question, which is, I think in evaluating what the Democrats got, I don't have an answer for this, but I throw it open or we'll leave it live. But one of the things Democrats say is, well, this didn't cut Medicare and Social Security, and therefore that's a win for Biden. And so the argument goes that they really were interested in making Social Security and Medicare cuts as a part of this leverage play using the debt ceiling. There were definitely some who flirted with that on the Republican side. I never thought they were that serious. I thought, I mean, when Rick Scott is saying things, you know it's not going to happen. And so if it was not a serious effort, then it's not a big win for Biden. They're claiming it's a big win, of course, because they need to claim things that are a win when it looks like Biden was rolled by McCarthy in some people's eyes. But that, to me, is an unanswered question here. I never, again, I never thought it was really that serious an effort here, and therefore it shouldn't be counted in the wins for Biden. I mean, that goes to the smallness of the fight and the way in which it almost feels symbolic. I mean, I don't, there's some changes, but in the end, it felt to me like the pipeline approval, the Mountain Valley pipeline, which would carry natural gas across Virginia and West Virginia. That's probably the most significant thing that happened. Of course, Slate Plus members get so much bonus stuff for their membership. They get full episodes of certain slate podcasts, full extra episodes, including new season of slow burn about Clarence Thomas, their bonus episodes you'll get as a slate plus member, you get bonus segments on tons of slate podcasts, including this one, you get unlimited reading on the slate site, no ads on on slate podcasts. And you get, of course, our bonus segment, which we do every week. And this week, we're going to talk about succession, we're going to talk about what can be learned about American politics, or the world, or really anything at all from the HBO show Succession. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here 
says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're joined by Corey Schock, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and the director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Corey, who is recently in Kiev, is here to talk about what feels like a particularly tense moment in the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is apparently bringing the war to Russia via drone strikes in Moscow and preparing for a major counteroffensive. And Moscow is, as it has been, continues to attack all across Ukraine, including right in the heart of the city in the middle of the day. So, Corey, when is the, the everyone keeps talking about there is a counteroffensive. It's about to begin. When is it to begin and what are its goals? So when it's to begin is a secret I'm sure most American defense experts don't know because the element of surprise will be important. What I think its goals are are two. First, to reclaim control of Ukrainian people and territory that Russia is currently in control of. And second, to demonstrate to the Western countries that have devoted so much money and equipment to Ukraine that the Ukrainian military is capable of a successful offense. They've demonstrated the ability to mount a successful defense, but pushing Russia out of Ukrainian territory is going to be hard to do. The Russians are dug in. They too are a military pretty good at defensive warfare. And so I think in order to sustain the levels of Western support that Ukraine continues to need, they've got to show that they can win on the battlefield. You know, it's fashionable to say that military force can't solve problems, but military force is going to solve this problem one way or the other. So in light of that, what should we think about the fact that F-16s are finally coming to Ukraine, that there's been this long-running debate about whether the U.S. in particular and NATO more generally have been too slow to, to deliver the kinds of weapon systems that the Ukrainians say they need to more quickly counter the Russians. I mean, it seems like right now the debate is about long-range weapon systems. Earlier, of course, there was the same fight about tanks. Could the Ukrainians win or win more quickly if only the alliance, its allies delivered? Or is that a kind of fantasy that misunderstands the political situation? No, I think that's true, Emily, that the Ukrainians could unquestionably win more quickly and with far fewer Ukrainian victims of the Russian aggression if we in the West, in particular the Biden administration, was less concerned about escalation or expansion of the war and gave the weapons that we said no to initially and then eventually said yes to on a faster timeline. The reason that 
fighter aircraft matter. The reason that Ukrainians are asking for F-16s is because they're in large supply, not just in the American weapons inventory, but in a number of allied inventories. What Ukraine needs is the ability to have radars for search and missiles of range that they can stay outside of the Russian response envelope and be able to protect Ukrainian territory. We've given the Russians an enormous advantage by constraining the Ukrainians to give Russian territory as a sanctuary. That is, they can't attack, they can't use Western military equipment to attack Russian territory. And that gives a sanctuary of the kind the Taliban had in Pakistan or the North Vietnamese had during the Vietnam War. It's very difficult to win a war when an adversary has sanctuary. And so I hope eventually, as Britain's foreign minister previewed in the last week, that we will relax that constraint. One other quick thing in response to why fighter planes matter is that the front where where combat is occurring and will occur during the offensive is 1,500 kilometers long. So the ability to quickly be able to bring firepower to bear against Russian forces that are either successfully defending or mounting a counteroffensive, 1,500 kilometers is a long stretch of battle space and aircraft can deliver firepower for Ukraine provided that they can stay out of the Russian response envelope. Corey, evaluate the reasons that the U.S. doesn't want to give planes or anybody else wants to give planes. I mean, I guess the argument has been they don't want the Ukrainians going into Russia. What do you make of that argument? So I think there are four arguments. And the one you just mentioned, the concern about targeting Russian territory, you know, the Biden administration's not wrong to worry about escalation. I personally think they are over concerned about escalation and that, you know, the fact that the Netherlands, Norway, Britain, Denmark, and Poland are willing to provide fighters or training, and they are much more likely to be retaliated against than the United States is. I think the fact that they are already out ahead of the United States suggests to me that we're perhaps unduly concerned. But it is a legitimate argument. The other legitimate argument is that the costs are mounting and supplies aren't inexhaustible. And so helping the Ukrainians think carefully about what do you need most, what's the most cost-effective way to provide that capability. And that has been a legitimate concern against providing fighter aircraft for some time. The two arguments that I think are invalid and are actually incredibly condescending are either that, well, the Ukrainians don't need this, you know, to tell people a year into a war where they're holding their own against what we thought was the second or third best army in the world is incredibly patronizing. And the other patronizing argument is, well, you know, they it'll be hard to figure out how to use it or to sustain it when Ukrainians on a war footing have blown through the timelines it takes American military forces to train up to use these kinds of weapons. Going back to the counteroffensive, Corey, so it is, as we've seen in the last 
year of warfare already. It's very, very hard to win a trench war. We've seen that throughout the 20th century. And the default state of trench warfare is kind of armies grinding at each other with the defender causing huge casualties for the attacker. What reasons are there to hope that a Ukrainian offensive might be different? That's a great question, David, because you're right. I mean, trench warfare bogs down. I think there are a couple of reasons. One, what I heard both from the defense minister and from military folks when I was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago is that they think, you know, the Russians have taken 100,000 casualties just since December. So they're, they're leveling up to close to 300,000 casualties that the Russians have taken since the start of the war. And the Ukrainians think, perhaps a little optimistically, that the Russian military may now be incredibly brittle and that when hit will break. And so that is one way you, you break the stalemate. And that's actually what the Russian military did in World War I, right? People just started leaving. A second way you break the logjam of trench warfare is overwhelming reinforcements. You know, that's the argument of American entry into World War I, that by the summer of 1917, we were sending 10,000 soldiers a day into the European front. And there, I think, you know, the Russians tried to raise 300,000, tried a mobilization of 300,000. They got 236,000 and a million 300,000 Russians fled the country. So the sand is running through the hourglass on Russia's ability. We don't have very good visibility into how fast the sand is running through the hourglass on the Ukrainian side. And so that's one of the big unknowns that could break very positively for Ukraine. Or if Ukraine doesn't have the troops to feed into the fight, could prove incredibly compromising for Ukraine. In that same vein, what do you think the effect of these drone strikes in Russia is on Russian public opinion? I mean, there's the possibility that this could put pressure on Putin to end the war or decrease the war. And then the other idea that Russians could rally to Putin's side because they feel threatened. And I wonder how you feel like this is factoring in. You know, I think that's a really important question. And I noticed that the drone strikes inside Russia are focused on military targets, fuel dumps, ammunition supplies, or Russian leadership targets. And so whoever's doing it, and I presume it's Ukrainian intelligence and special operations, they're trying to make a distinction between legitimate military targets and leadership targets on the one hand and the Russian population on the other hand. So they're clearly worried about the concern you raised. It seems to me, though, that, you know, Russians appear to support this war. And, you know, maybe 20 years into a dangerous authoritarian leader and complete control of the media, we can't expect them to do any different. But I think I think we should anticipate they will continue to support the war because that's their safe option. One other quick thing on this subject, though. When I was in Ukraine, the most interesting thing that I heard anybody 
in the Ukrainian leadership say is that they think the the challenge to Putin's control of the country has been underway since the fall. That is that it's not that Putin is permitting Prigozhin to go after the military leadership and the musical chairs that's going on among the military leadership, that it's not that Putin's permitting that, it's that he can't prevent it. And so one other way this could end is the fracturing of, of Russian control. That actually, I'm going to pick up right there because I wanted to ask you about Prigozhin. What do you, what's your read? What's the Ukrainian read based on your visit of what exactly is going on and what that says about the brittle nature of the Russian forces? And if I could kind of bolt onto that, why are the Russians so bad and are they getting any better? <laughs> you know, I think about that question all of the time, John. So first, you know, Prigozhin has apparently political ambitions in Russia and started the campaign in Bakhmut in August, thinking he would show the despondency of the regular Russian military and the superiority of his crack mercenaries. It took him, what, nine months, and he barely eked out a win at enormously high casualties. And so one positive sign for me about the direction of the war is Prigozhin arguing that his mercenaries are going to pivot back to Africa because if they were succeeding in Ukraine, he'd be there taking credit for the success in Ukraine. To your bigger question about why are the Russians so bad at this, it is such a shock to me. And I think it is to a lot of folks who think of ourselves as defense experts that we so overrated the capabilities of the Russian military. The first thing I should say is that you know, you, it's hard to tell how good an army is until you fight it. You know, war is a gambler's paradise, and it's very hard to tell who will be good at it because exactly as the boxer Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And the nature of winning wars is about how a military adapts once things don't go according to plan. And what we have seen is at least up to the brigade level of operations in Ukraine, they're fabulous at adaptation. They are fabulous at linking the strengths of the broader civilian society and roping them in in support of the war effort. You know, teenage kids with personal drones doing surveillance that they can report the locations of Russian military units through a government-designed app that helps the military do their targeting. I mean, that's amazing. And one explanation for why the Russians have done so badly is that they are still a command and control military. There's no reward for taking initiative that, you know, as long as you obey orders, you'll be fine. But the nature of Western military operations is to push initiative down to the lowest level of operations so that people can see what's happening tactically and respond very quickly and creatively given what ammunition they have, what mobility they have. It's very hard to run a top-down war. And the Russians continue to try and run a top-down war, whereas the Ukrainians are much nimbler and more adaptive. 
But it's also true that the Russians are adapting, and in particular, the way that they are using drones in conjunction with crews and hypersonic missiles in order to try and exhaust Ukrainian air defenses. So super short, Corey, does that mean, or do you think that means, or there's the potential for that to mean that there's a difference in the in the home field advantage in warfare, that because of the adaptability allowed by personal communications and drones and all these electronics, that it's going to be harder for militaries to go onto other people's territory because of those kinds of networks that have been so quickly built up in Ukraine? Absolutely. You know, the home field disadvantage is that your own population is at risk. But if you look at the speed with which Ukraine has deployed railroad repairs, power repairs, you know, that's a huge advantage that that won't accrue to everybody on their home field, right? I don't think the Russians would be able to manage that in the way that the Ukrainians have. The other thing that I would say on that is that persistent surveillance of the battlefield really is a new element we are seeing. You know, the transparency with which it's difficult to mass forces, it's difficult to disguise forces, it's difficult to move them without people knowing where they're going. That's Again, that's going to be a big advantage at the lower levels of operations. And that's precisely where we've seen the Russians struggle in Ukraine. Corey Schock of The Atlantic and American Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you, my friends. Ken Paxton, if he did not exist, a novelist would have had to make him up. The Texas Attorney General is brazenly, magnificently corrupt. We will get into the details shortly. He is so corrupt that he managed to get himself impeached in the Texas State House of Representatives, a body overwhelmingly made up of Republicans who overwhelmingly voted to impeach him. He is now at some point going to be tried in the Texas Senate, the Senate where his wife serves as a senator. But who knows how she feels, given that about a quarter of his corruption charges relate to Paxton's mistress. But the civil war in the Texas GOP is is delightful, but probably ultimately not that important, since there is really no doubt that Paxton's successor as attorney general, if there is a successor, will also be a Republican and will be as as right tilting as he is. But it's really fun, interesting scandal, Emily. And before we get to kind of the Cheesecake Factory menu length set of corruption charges about Paxton's misbehavior. Who is he? Why is he so beloved of the hard right of the Republican Party nationwide? I mean, he's the tip of the spear for using lawsuits and courts to rattle right-wing sabers. So he's the attorney general that led the challenge to the election results in 2020 on behalf of Donald Trump. He's the one who, you know, threatened the parents of transgender kids with child abuse allegations, you know, a truly just like disgusting way of threatening families. And there have been lawsuits about immigration, about abortion. I mean, he's the person who gets together Republican attorneys general and uses the courts to just really promote this right wing agenda. Totally. For that reason, I actually think this is kind of significant because 
even if he's replaced by someone who's just as, you know, hard right as he is, the idea that that person is going to immediately jump into this very prominent role and, and be the, the, the tip of the spear, the guy who says, let's charge ahead. Let's do, you know, the most extreme thing possible. I don't think that is actually easily replaced. Oh, but don't you think that, that 27 other attorneys general, Republican attorneys general watching Paxton have realized, oh yeah, this is a, this is a great place to be. I'll be, if Paxton's not there, there's going to be jockeying by the attorney general in Missouri and Mississippi and Arkansas and Montana to play that role. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's a vacuum to be filled, but it still takes a little while to figure out who that person is going to be, whether, you know, they have the same kind of name recognition and the same ability to tell people that they're going in the right direction. It's only in retrospect that you're like, oh yeah, this is what we should do. This It's this legal strategy to pursue. So in that sense, I think it will at least take some time. I feel like there is national importance here in a in a couple of ways that he's kind of perfecting a version of politics that Donald Trump took pro. When you read his case, which we should we should spend some time on because it really is quite extraordinary. The the it's sort of compounding nature of offenses. But you know, there are some plays that he's running where he's being as entrepreneurial as as Donald Trump. So for example, one of the investigations is related to eight of his former staffers blowing the whistle on him. And that was in, I guess, October of 2020. He then, of course, joined, you know, what was leading the vanguard in claiming that the free and fair election was not free and fair. And because of his role in that, he can say, oh, I'm under partisan persecution, even though these are former staffers of his own team. So in other words, when you get in trouble, do something partisan so that when you get called on for the things you did in the past, even though there was no political motivation at the time, you can claim that you are under political persecution. And that that play is one that can be replicated, and we see it replicated with, you know, George Santos and others. And so I think what he's doing is kind of expert entrepreneurial behavior in taking these kinds of behaviors, which sort of feel small town and local, and adding to the work that Donald Trump has done and turning them pro. And so I think others, there will be others who will copy this behavior. And I think that's why he's, it's so fascinating. So let's go to the corruption. He, he is truly practiced old timey forms of corruption, corruption that John in his, in his peregrinations through American history has no doubt encountered many times. The charges he principally been impeached for relate to his relationship with a guy named Nate Paul, who's an Austin real estate tycoon, or perhaps an erstwhile Austin real estate tycoon. And he appears to have just done all kinds of things to help out Paul, giving legal opinions in his favor, appointing a special counsel to investigate the investigations of Paul. And in exchange, he got Paul to install some really expensive kitchen counters and do his home renovation for free and to hire his mistress. And when, of course, his own staff complained that he was doing favors for Paul and and were whistleblowers, he fired them. And it's really, it just feels like very LBJ or something. It just, yeah. It's it's really got a like kind of a nice 19th century even vibe to it. Right. Or small town. I mean, it feels like the kind of thing you can get away with when you own everybody. And I mean, his Senate trial, one of the facts I read was that he served when he was in the legislature with 21 of the senators who are going to be ruling on his um, I don't know whether that uh, that doesn't include his actual w- wife, which, as David pointed out, it, there's some complexity there because 
his mistress was that's the mistress is one of the ways in which this feels like gaudy Texas jewelry where it's just gold clumped upon gold. That's right. So, it's like, like we we forgot the mistress. Let's add a mistress. Don't forget these are conservative Christians too. Yeah. I mean, so here you have this married Christian crusader who has an affair with a woman, but that's not enough. He then asked the developer that he's, according to these aides that work for him, in this relationship with, from a legal standpoint, to then hire the mistress. It's not just enough to have a mistress. And it's not just enough to be potentially or allegedly too close to a developer. But you got to combine the two of them. And it's like when he came into office, he was under, he was either under indictment or very soon under indictment for, for a tech company scheme, alleged scheme. And one of the donors to his legal defense fund from Arizona, he hired his son and the son then gets charged or fired for showing child pornography. So it's not just enough that you hire the son of a person donating to your legal defense fund, which was also donated to by a person who had business before the attorney general, as was reported. So it's like you, it's like these compounding uh, elements to the various things. And the only final thing I would say is that you don't have to believe any of the charges against him. His defense for himself, I mean, he's only a few steps away from saying something like, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? You know, the, the defenses are kind of increasingly hard to swallow given all the claims against him. And for all that, I mean, the legislature only acted once he agreed to pay a $3.3 million settlement to the whistleblowers he retaliated against and then charged Texas for that. Like, that's the part that they couldn't stomach. It was the actual payoff that coming out of state coffers. I want, I'm interested in your take on one of the arguments that Paxson's defenders have made, which I've also heard made in other circumstances, which is... Paxton has won two elections while under investigation, and one of his main defenses is, oh, this was litigated by the election. And this is something you also heard people say about various Trump things, like all the sort of Trump misdeeds that that from pre-2016 are allegedly wiped out. Oh, the, the voters knew about it. They voted for him anyway. So that's it. Is anything ever settled by an election when it comes to corruption and crime? Does an election wipe any slate clean ever? I mean, I think it's a pretty strong argument. You make the argument that the remedies for this are political, not legal, and that the voters had all of this in front of them and they chose to ignore it and politics should proceed. The argument on the other side, of course, is that what impeachment is for is exactly this kind of just like gaudy, well-documented illegality. And that's where you've kind of crossed the line, right? And where we are back in the 19th century, where people got impeached for things like, you know, wanton drunkenness and suitcases full of money. And once you're in that territory, then you want the colleagues, right? Or the the peer people in government, the other branch, to be able to weigh in separately. And that's what the Republican House in Texas, the bipartisan vote in Texas, sets up for this trial in the Senate. I think when it's actual law-breaking, the law makes its ruling, and the and the voters can vote them in or not, and it doesn't matter. The law is the law. And and so people should get thrown in jail even if they win by you know 100% landslide. The impeachment question is whether, you know, in that gray area, where no specific law has been broken, but the person has broken a norm, and those norms are in part policed by the voters. And so that seems to be a place where you can have more, you know, flexibility. But as I recall, didn't Mitch McConnell make kind of the opposite argument at the second impeachment, which was essentially 
what Donald Trump did can be handled by the courts. We don't need to impeach him because there is that other remedy out there for what he did, which is potentially clearly illegal. I mean, there is a corruption investigation into Paxton, which now the Justice Department has taken over from the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Antonio. But, you know, that's like another track. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? Like whether someone should face criminal charges is different from this remedy of impeachment, which is kind of in the middle. I mean, you know, you have different kinds of standards of evidence. You have a different body sitting in judgment. I mean, I think what's interesting is that it's like you kind of need all of these mechanisms. And the reason why I think you need all these mechanisms, you need the, you need elections to be a judgment and you need the courts to be a judgment judgment. You need impeachment to be a judgment because the capacity of politicians to manipulate these, each of these things is pretty high. And I'm thinking of, so Paxton, you would say like, oh, well, he should be punished by the courts. I mean, this should be a something that is litigated in the courts and punished by the courts. But if you look at this first corruption case he's involved in, he's been facing these charges relating to sort of an investment fraud for eight years. And he's been able to use, because he is a the attorney general of Texas, and because he has all kind of strings to pull, he's been able to use mechanism after mechanism, favor after favor, you know, chicanery after chicanery to ensure that he's never been put on trial for for these charges, which someone who wasn't the attorney general of Texas would have been put on trial for years earlier and probably would have gone to prison for years earlier. And so I think this kind of redundancy, the, the belt and suspenders of impeachment, the courts, elections is kind of necessary when you have people who are able to manipulate portions of that process. And if it's only the political process that can punish them, you see, if my theory is right about the plays he's running, you see, you're seeing how it's distorting his job. I mean, when the Justice Department starts investigating you, you have to start doing things that allow you to turn yourself into a national partisan so that you can claim that what's being done against you is totally partisan motivation. I mean, it completely warps the office. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a, a Shiner Bach or some other extremely cold Texas beer. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering Well, I'm about? going to be chattering about, and I feel like there was drinking surely involved in this, is the possibly 600-year-old cheese rolling race in England. It's held near Gloucester, this cheese rolling event. And Cooper's Hill, which is in Gloucester, is where they roll down a seven pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese. And the competitors at the top chase the wheel of cheese down the 200 yards hill. And um, the first person there wins the race and then, of course, wins the wheel of double Gloucester. And what was exciting about this year's race is the contestant Delaney Irving, who won the women's race, did so after being knocked unconscious. She essentially was knocked unconscious and and the momentum flopped her body over the um, finish line. And she said, I just remember hitting my head and now I have the cheese, which I think is kind of words to live by for all of us. Yeah, the footage and the photos are astonishing because you think like, oh, it's just 200 yards. But actually- Oh, it's just a 45 degree angle. And it's a 45 degree angle. And you're like, it's a 45 degree angle. It's like a foot down, a foot across. What's the big deal? And, but actually it's- insane. It's insane. (laughs) Emily, what's your chatter? I want to recommend a book called I've Just Seen a Face. It's a practical and emotional guide for parents of children born with cleft lip and palate. 
It's by my friend Amy Mandillo, whose daughter was born with cleft lip and palate. And, you know, this is the kind of experience as a parent that if you end up in this particular small but like very intense lane, it's really helpful to have advice, to have people who've been through it before, who can hold your hand, who understand what's going on. And Amy is incredibly sensitive and empathetic. And her daughter has grown up into this like lovely, sturdy, just confident kid. So anyway, I've just seen a face. If you are dealing with cleft lip and palate or you know people who are, you want to understand it better, I really recommend it. I want to chatter. This is sort of a Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson chatter because it was a chatter of something I read at Emily's house. Emily had a whole bunch of copies of the old New Yorkers as one does around. And I picked up a copy of a August, 2022 New Yorker that she had around and stumbled upon something, which I'm sure John knows a ton about, which is there is in October of 1964, Nat Hentoff, was a reporter for the New Yorker and he went to do a profile of 23-year-old Bob Dylan and sat in the studio as Bob Dylan spent the one night that he would spend in the studio to make the album that would become another side of Bob Dylan. It's a it's a profile of Dylan and it's about Dylan's recording process and the kind of characters who surround him and it's a fantastic story or rather it's a good story. It's an okay story. And it's fantastic because of course, Bob Dylan becomes Bob Dylan. I mean, he's already part way to being Bob Dylan, but he then, you know, is soon going to become fully Bob Dylan and, and to catch him this young and to have so much access to him and to watch him as he's recording times of freedom and my back pages and to, to write down sort of what those lyrics are in real time as these lyrics are sort of being spoken into a microphone or sung into a microphone for the first time. It's, it's incredible. So it's just as, as a portrait of an important moment in history. It's a wonderful story. Have you read this, John? I, you know, I read it so long ago, and, and I'm so excited you brought that up because I have independently, or maybe not independently, one forgets over the course of life whether a thought is new or you're just rediscovering something you once thought before. But that period has always been so interesting to me because the previous album to Another Side of Bob Dylan, which was made in 1964, was The Times They Are Changing from 1964, which is kind of the pinnacle of, in my mind anyway, the protest singer Bob Dylan. And so here you have a guy putting out two albums in the same year, which you wouldn't normally have, I think, in today's age. Like that's He's incredibly prolific. And he's making a super big turn in his career, and that career then becomes defined by making one turn after another. I mean, constantly turning and turning and turning. And that's led to some of his greatest moments of artistic achievement. So this is like the first turn at this key moment, both in his career and in his discography. It's really cool. To everything, turn, 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 apparently. There's a season. But yeah, and that's exactly what the article's about. That's what Hentoff is capturing. Hentoff is capturing that that Dylan sort of moving away from the protest song and consciously sort of making the shift and and it's it's all it's all in the story so anyway 1964 nat hentoff story about bob dylan listeners you sent us excellent chatters this week i'm very excited to hear our listener chatter this week which is from james carey but please you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com tweet them to us at, at slate gabfest something that you're interested in and excited about so let's listen to james carey's chatter 
Hi there, Slight Political Gab Fest. This is James Carey from Brown Township, Ohio. My listener chatter is regarding President Dwight Eisenhower, who remains arguably the best cook among our American presidents. When Ike was president of Columbia University after World War II, the students asked him for a recipe, thinking perhaps Mamie would provide them with a cake recipe or perhaps some cookies. Instead, Ike sent a personally hand-typed letter for his two-day vegetable soup. The recipe was subsequently reprinted throughout the country and is available as a facsimile from the Eisenhower Presidential Library. I find the style and depth of the writing fascinating and his inclusion of nasturtiums on a seasonal basis blows my mind. Thanks. Love the podcast. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced today by Jared Downing. Usually, of course, it's Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and email chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? The overlap between watchers of Succession and listeners to the GabFest, I suspect, is really, really high. Though we, I don't think we've ever talked about the show. I feel like I've tried. Yeah. Yeah. John's, well, John doesn't watch it. We're going to have spoilers aplenty in this Slate Plus segment. So stop listening if you don't want the spoilers. Emily and I watched the show avidly. John, you watched it not at all? I've never watched a single frame of it. But that's not, I don't claim that as any kind of virtuous thing at all. What do you claim as a virtuous thing? Name something you claim as a virtuous thing. My constant selflessness in my marriage and family exactly. life. Um, but I, I, before we start, I have two things to say. One is, I just, because on these, like Breaking Bad, what, all the other, shoot, what was the one about the advertising agency? Mad Men. Mad um, Men. Mad Men. People devote entire, I guess my point is, these these are such investments. And I feel like, oh my God, I don't think I can take on this huge, massive investment. There are shows we watch, but I, so it has nothing to do with any artistic quality assessment on my part or the quality of anything. So I apologize. The second thing is, can you both say to me why it is that the show is so captivating? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 